Well, hey, welcome here. And to those of you joining us uh, at the other campuses, welcome as well. Uh, you want to have your Bibles. We are continuing on in the study of 1 Peter, uh, and you should know that by now. We're five, six weeks into this study, and so we're picking up. We're into chapter 2 of 1 Peter, and you'll want to follow along in those first 10 verses as we get to it. Uh, so just tell you a bit of a story. Uh, I learned uh, back as a 16-year-old the importance of a cornerstone. And you might wonder, well, what the heck is that story about? Well, I'm going to tell you. Aren't you excited? So on a summer mission trip, I had the privilege as a 16-year-old to spend uh, the entire summer in uh, Venezuela as part of a youth construction team, which that's kind of an oxymoron, right? Youth construction team. And we were building a concrete block dormitory on a Christian camp. So we arrive at this camp in the middle of nowhere with no modern tools and really no expertise whatsoever. And we're going to start from scratch in this building lot to build this building. So the hole is dug for the foundations, the footings, no boards to put around the concrete. We literally dug one foot holes down in the trench in, mixed the concrete by hand, leveled it with a hose with water in it, a clear hose that because water goes to the level, got the foundation of the footing level, and now it's time to lay the cornerstone. Because the corner, the first corner you lay is going to set out the direction for that entire cinder block building. And so thankfully for the cornerstone, they brought in a master block layer. Now, I don't even know if that's a thing, but we thought he was a master block layer. Those of you who are block layers, come tell me what we actually call you. But anyway, he was a master. And he laid in that first corner four rows on the corner, perpendicular at a right angle and making sure it's completely level. And then it's like, okay, you're good and I'm leaving. You're like, what? Yeah, you're good. If you build off of this corner and you measure to the other corner and the other corners and the other corners and you run string lines and you make sure everything's level, this building will be right if you build it according to the cornerstone. Now, I have no clue if that building is still standing today. <laughs> but I learned the importance of the cornerstone. If you build according to that corner that is set, the entire building will be right. And that construction lesson that I learned back as a 16-year-old has a direct application in the text we're in today. So we're in this study in 1 Peter. And Peter talks about the house that God is building out of his people. He talks about the spiritual house, the temple, the, the living stones that he pulls us together into this spiritual house. Now, if, if you're visiting or if you've forgotten, let me just take you back to the beginning. That this book is written to a bunch of Christians who are scattered across what we would call today Turkey, Asia Minor, throughout the provinces of Asia Minor. And Peter writes to encourage these people because they are facing persecution. And he writes to them to anchor their identity deeply in the love of God as children of God and as ones who are sent out into a world that might be hostile toward them because of the persecution that is beginning to rise in the Roman Empire. God is calling a people for himself, is kind of how I've worded it. He's calling a people for himself and unto himself as agents of blessing in this world. That's really the overarching theme of particularly this section that we're in right now, but this whole book. That God's calling us to himself, unto himself, and for himself, and then he is sending us back to be a blessing. That we are the people of God. We are the people of God. And we are sent on a mission. Now, that might sound really arrogant and really audacious if it was us making the statement. 
But it's not us making the statement. It's God by his Holy Spirit making this statement about us, about his children, that this identity is given to us by the Spirit of God, that you are my deeply loved children, you are the people of God, and I am sending you. I'm forming a people for myself, and then I'm sending you out. Now, the first chapter, we finished it, and we've seen already that the people of God are a rejoicing people. So just give you a little bit of a recap. The the chapter opens with, bless God. Join me in rejoicing because he has saved us. He has called us to a living hope, a guaranteed inheritance, and a secure salvation. And in that we rejoice, even though the text says, you face trials, you're suffering, you've got hard stuff in your life. And despite all of that, you still rejoice. And I, I challenged you several weeks ago in that text that if you're not a rejoicing Christian, then you're probably not a Christian. Because that's what the text says. We rejoice in our salvation. Secondly, we saw that the people of God are a holy people. We're rejoicing people. We're a holy people. That there is a soberness to our walk. That there is a guarding of our minds. That there is an uh, an alertness. We understand what the word sober means. And that spiritually, we try to stay attuned and alert to what God is doing. That we live in deep and reverent sense of awe of God. And and for two reasons, that text told us. Because one day, we're going to stand before him as our judge. One day, we're going to stand before the creator of the universe. And we are going to give an account for our life. And so because of that, we live in reverential fear and awe of this God. But we also stand in awe of him because of the awesome price he paid to purchase us. The precious blood of Jesus Christ. A rejoicing people, a holy people. And then a couple weeks ago, Pastor Greg reminded us that the people of God are a loving people. That's the text just before ours today. That we are called to earnestly love one another. The word is love the brothers, love the sisters, love the family of God. Earnestly, purely, sincerely. With the very same love that you see articulated to you in the gospel of Jesus. Based on the gospel of Jesus that you have come to respond to. Or or summarized like in 1 John 4. We love because he first loved us. So God loved us and we cannot but help but love one another. So we are rejoicing people, we're a holy people, we're a loving people, and then today, today's text, we are going to see that we are also a representative people. We are called to be God's representative. So Peter grabs this construction metaphor, a cornerstone and of buildings, and he talks about our life in the family of God. So we're going to follow along, it'll be on the screen, you can read in your own Bibles, just listen in. So put away all malice and deceit, and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, 
a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Okay, the key verse that we're going to really anchor to is verse 9 that you have been called by God and sent by God. You are a royal priesthood unto what end? That you might proclaim the excellencies of God. That God's intent for this spiritual house that we make up is that we would proclaim his excellencies to a watching world. That we would display his glory to the nations. That's the purpose. But we need to run through the entire text. So this house, we're going to see that we are part of, this house, this spiritual house, is built on the word of God. It is built on a person, and it is also built for a purpose. Built on the word, built on a person, and built for a purpose. So I'm going to run through it, and then we're going to camp in verse 9 for just a little bit of time. So the chapter opens. Now, this is an interesting transition, because actually, in my opinion, the first three verses actually belong to the text before They're finishing up the thought from two weeks ago when Pastor Greg was preaching on this loving community that we are. It says, so, or it could be therefore, or so then. So put away all malice. So in response to what? So in response to the fact that you are to earnestly love one another. That you have purified your souls by your obedience to the truth and you earnestly love one another. So then put away malice and deceit, and envy, and slander, and hypocrisy. Those five words in that verse are, you can see it already, they are deeply, deeply relational. They're relational. They have to do with how we connect with one another. No evil intentions whatsoever in our relationship one to another. No lies, no deceit. Total transparency, total integrity. Uh, No petty jealousies or competition between one another. No bad-mouthing of one another. No backbiting. So you you look at it and you take the opposite and you say, you want to destroy loving relationships in in any family or in any church or in any city or any context? You want to destroy them? Well, then just go ahead and continue to live with malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. And it'll just ruin everything. So put them aside. And as you put them aside, instead long for the pure spiritual milk of the word, like a newborn infant. Now, this is an interesting phrase because uh, some of you who are familiar with the New Testament will know that that phrase is used in a couple other places as well. Hebrews 5 and 1 Corinthians 3. And in those contexts, it's used in a negative way. Pure spiritual milk, in those contexts, is talking about people who are immature in their faith, who have never grown up in their faith. They've never gotten their roots down deep into God's word. And, and it's actually used as a rebuke. That you're infants. You, you can't take the pure, the, the meat of the word. You still need milk because you've never grown up. And, and Paul to the Corinthians says, you're worldly, you're carnal, you're, you're fighting with one another, and, and you need to grow up. But in this context, it's used in a positive Not as a negative, but rather as a positive. And and Peter says, in essence, regardless of how old you are, regardless of how long you have walked with Christ, regardless of whether it's been five years or 50 years, you continue to long and crave and yearn for the milk, the spiritual milk of the word of God. And and more than just the word of God, the the community of God, the, the nourishment that we find in the family of God, that you long for it. 
You see, this house that God is building is built on the word, but, but not just the word itself, but the spiritual nourishment that we need. I, I like how Scott McKnight, he makes this comment in his, in his commentary on this passage, pure spiritual milk refers to the very things that nourish the Christian community in its growth. Knowledge of God, prayer, instruction in the gospel, faithful obedience, and hearing God's preached word. The desire for spiritual nourishment is the desire of any church that wants to know the Lord and live in light of his will. Anybody in this room who has ever taken care of a newborn infant whether it's your own or your babysitting, will know that unless there is something wrong with that child, you do not have to force feed that child. Do you remember caring for a newborn? Some of you have them right now. You know that inevitably, like a clock ticking away, they start fussing. They start moving. They start demanding, literally screaming, demanding, feed me! It speaks of the craving, the hunger. And Peter is like, let that hunger for spiritual nourishment be yours, regardless of how old you are in the faith. If you're here and you're 96 years old, you still long for the spir pure spiritual milk of this Christian community. So as we see in the second it's built on the word, but it's also built on a person. It's a living house. Verse 4, he says, as you come to him. Verse 4, you come to him. You're like, well, who's the him? Who's the him it's referring to? Well, it's referring to a living stone. That's the him. A living stone, the cornerstone. In fact, a one that's chosen by God and rejected by men. It's that one that you're coming to. He's grabbing a metaphor, obviously. The metaphor of a spiritual house, that there's one living stone stacked on top of another living stone joined to another living stone, and eventually they fill this living house, this spiritual house, this temple unto God. But it starts with the cornerstone. It starts with the cornerstone upon which everything else lines itself up, and if you get the corner right, the entire house will be right. And that stone is a person, he says. And so he quotes three Old Testament passages. So verse 6, he quotes from Isaiah 28, verse 16. Therefore says the Lord, behold, I am the one who's laid the foundation in Zion, a stone, tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. In verse 7, he quotes from Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And Isaiah 8, the Lord of hosts will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. Now, th th this is where we just need to press pause and just go like have a long conversation. Because there is so much that those three texts could tell us. Like if you could just sit in and let those things ruminate in your mind. If you could, in fact, you should do this. You should go home and you should go to those cross references and read the entire context around them. The story of what was happening in the Old Testament. And make it like a long evening of fine dining. You know one of those meals that you only do when you're ready to spend like $300 on a special occasion? And it starts with an appetizer, and then they go away, and then they come back and they bring you, you know, the first part, and then they go away and they bring you something else. And this long evening of course after course and, and conversation and deep and richness, and, and you're like, man, that was an evening, it was so great. 
That's what you need to do with a text like this is to mine into those. And, and, and we, we simply just don't have the time. But each one of those three texts and their context would tell us that the Old Testament surely pointed forward to one who was identified as the cornerstone. The Old Testament says there is a day coming when one who is identified as the living stone, the cornerstone, the foundation, he is coming. And now make no mistake about it, the New Testament affirms categorically that that cornerstone is a person and that that person is Jesus Christ. 100%. The one who was rejected by his own people. So there are seven references in the New Testament specifically to this cornerstone, this living stone. And then there's a a lot of other sort of uh, nuances, but six, seven that literally name it. And our text is one of them. And then if you go back to Acts 4, so on the day of Pentecost, Peter is preaching. And he says to the Jewish people, this Jesus... This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. You get this stone right, you get salvation. You reject this stone, you don't. Paul, when he's talking to the Romans about how Israel has been set aside, literally the nation of Israel, the Jewish people group, has been set aside for a time being because they rejected the stone. Chapter 9, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it's written. Behold, I am laying the stone in Zion of stumbling a rock of offense, and Israel rejected him. Israel jumped over him, and so the Lord moves on. And then Ephesians 9, written to that church, so you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That same language there, he's building a house, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and here it is, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. But the most sobering, The most sobering reference to the cornerstone is Jesus himself when he tells a story, a parable, and it's recorded in all three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell the same story. And Jesus is talking to religious leaders, Pharisees. They're skeptical of him. They're questioning, and they keep throwing stuff at him, and he goes, let me tell you a story. There's a landowner, and he owns a vineyard. And he's going to be out of the country for a while. So he gets some tenants to come and take care of his vineyard. And they do a share crop arrangement. The rent on the land is we're going to share the profits from the harvest. And so harvest time comes and he sends a servant to go collect his profits. And another servant and another servant and another servant. And what do they do? They kill one. They stone one. They chase them off. They ignore them. And so the owner finally goes, okay, then I'm going to send my very own son Because they will not ignore my son. They will give us the prophets. And so they send the son and those tenants, those dirty rascals, they take the son and they kill the landowner's son. And Jesus says, what do you think the landowner is going to do? And the Pharisees rightly respond. They say, I guess he's going to punish them. And he's obviously going to give that vineyard to somebody else. And then Jesus says this. Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, I've I've got to stop there. I just can't help myself. I'm sorry I've got to stop right there. But that quote from Psalm 18, the next verse many of you know, many of you have memorized, the very next verse following that says, and this is the day the Lord has made, and I'll rejoice and be glad in it. 
Now, a ton of people know that verse. It's on coffee mugs, it's on posters, but do you know the context for that is that he has revealed the cornerstone, and it's marvelous in his eyes. This living stone, this rock, God has revealed it. This is the day the Lord has made. I'll rejoice. So, now come back to the text. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. Does that not sober you? And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was talking about them. They were ticked off. You see, it is one of the most sobering stories for anybody who claims to be a follower of Jesus. Because what this text tells us, by example, is that if we think that we can stand in the way of what the Spirit of God wants to do in our lives and around us and in our world, if we think in any way we can block that, we've got another thought coming, God will just step around us and he'll find somebody else. He will not put up with the vineyard workers who don't want to give him the profits from the harvest. You'd be like, that's fine. I'll get some other people to work in my harvest. It should sober us that we never, ever want to stand in the way of what God is doing in our lives. So there's no question that the New Testament readers understood. I'm with you, kid. <laughs> I know, that preacher is so long. There is no question that the New Testament readers understood that the Old Testament cornerstone was indeed Jesus. And so like a kid laying blocks in Venezuela... We knew, we were taught, if the corner is right, the whole building will be right. And the same is true with Jesus as the spiritual cornerstone in our lives. And our response to him, the deciding point, is either for every single person who ever encounters a message like this, either he will be the cornerstone in your life and everything will be built accordingly, or he will be the rock that ultimately crushes you. You either reject him or you accept him. But if you come to him, go back to verse 4, if you come to him, you come to this living stone, and now you, like another living stone, are added to that cornerstone, one upon another, upon another, upon another, building the spiritual house. And then finally, verse 9 and 10, thirdly, we see that this house is built for a specific purpose. It's built on the word, it's built on a person, and it is built for a purpose. It tells us right there to declare the praises of God to a sometimes uninterested world. So a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. And each one of those phrases is an echo of an Old Testament promise. Each one of those phrases brings the covenant promises of the Old Testament forward to the new covenant people of God, you and me. And the people of God are a representative people. Now, you got to stay with me because this is where it gets really good. That we are both priests unto God and priests to the world. Let me say that again because you're going, what are we becoming, Roman Catholic around here? No, we're not. Just listen. This text tells us that we are both priests unto God and priests unto the world. And this is where it gets intensely practical because you understand the calling of a priest. I'm sure everybody in this room has some understanding of what the priest does. The priest stands between, as a mediator between God and people. The priest represents to God 
people, bringing them to God and representing the people to God and, and standing in the gap between them, bringing them to God, bringing God to them as a mediator, as an advocate, as a bridge. That's what the priest does. But the key to understanding this text is this. The priesthood in this text is a corporate priesthood. It's a plural. It's a plural priesthood. It is something we do together. The priest, read it carefully, in this context is not the individual, but the entire building. Not the individual living stone, but the entire living house. That as the people of God, as the people of God, we stand before a watching world. As the church together, we stand in the gap. And this has massive implications for us. And see, I think we have misunderstood or misapplied sometimes the doctrine we call it the priesthood of the believers. Many of you have heard that language. It goes back to Martin Luther and the Reformation when they were making all these changes to what was then the Roman Catholic Church and this new Protestant faith that comes out of it and removing the layers between the clergy and the laity and saying those shouldn't exist. Every person can speak and lead and serve and we don't need these divisions and, and so baptisms and communions, the, everybody should be able to do those. Everybody should be able to participate and we don't need any earthly priest because Jesus is our high priest. And so we go through Jesus right directly into the presence of God. And that is the doctrine of the priesthood of the believers as individuals. And those things are true. And they are right and they are good. But what this text says, what this text says, it is the people of God together that have a priestly function. In his book, Pilgrims and Priests, uh, Stephen Poss says this. God does not appoint individuals as priests in order to bring them subsequently together in the congregation. Precisely the opposite is true. By virtue of their baptism, Christians are joined with Christ, embedded in the church, and only thus do they receive their priestly status. You see, our individual priestly function as living stones comes because we're part of the larger living house of God. And then individually we act as priests. Now, I know this is heady stuff. Just suck it up. <laughs> the implications are staggering, my friend. They are so staggering and they are so practical and actually, frankly, so exciting. Because as the church gathers, as we are in settings like this, at all of our campuses, and anytime you're in a, a group of people, as the church gathered, something significant happens. Because as the priest, we, as the priest, as the priesthood, as the living household, as we lift up and exalt and make much exalt the excellencies of God, as we intercede for our city, our family, our friends, as we pray, as we do on weekends like this for our grads and others around us, as we believing wives pray for their unbelieving husbands and as citizens who in this context were living under a hostile government who was persecuting them, something happens in the heavenly realms. Ephesians 3 says this, it's really a quite a mysterious text, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's a very interesting text. Because what it says is when we gather, there's a news report going out in the heavenly realms. 
the angels and the demons are well aware when the church gathers. And when they see the corporate people of God, the living house of God, lifting up and exalting the name of Jesus, it is like a beam of light going up woo, into the heavenly realms. And the angels and the demons are aware of it. We are making a broadcast into the spiritual realm when we gather as a people and we exalt Christ. What if we were to deeply ponder this? So let me ask you, seriously, seriously, why do you gather? Whether you say this service in particular right now in this moment or any time you gather with the people of God, when you are driving off the driveway to go to a gathering of God's people, why do you do that? And do you come to those gatherings to receive from the Lord or to give back to the Lord? Do you come into the gathering going, oh my goodness, this week has been the best week ever of my life. God has blessed us so much. The business is great. The family is great. The kids are great. Like everything. I have got to get to the gathering to express my praise. Woo! Or this week has been hell. I didn't think I'd survive it. I cannot get through one more day because my work sucks and family's not going good and finances are not good and health is not good and I have got to get to the gathering so I can be healed up. Which is it? It's both, is it not? And there are people in this room right now in both of those situations. And what if we embraced our corporate role as the priests of God? Because all of those things are great and good, but like the priest in the Old Testament who enters into the holy place to intercede for the people on the outside. Now think about this, that we corporately, we, all of us, the spiritual house, stand as one man, as one body, as one priest. There's not multiple priests in this room right now in this moment. We are one priesthood. One priest interceding on behalf of the world, coming to God on behalf of our nation, our city, our families, our schools, our workplaces, that we are praying prayers of intercession for those who are not in the room. That we're gathering to intercede for the majority of our cities that have no connection to any life-giving church. And believing that as we do it, something mysterious happens in the spiritual realm. And that might really change how we look at the purpose of our gatherings, would it not? That we are not only to be a rejoicing people and a holy people and a loving people, but we are a representative people. We bring God to people and people to God. I like this phrase again from Stephen Paz. If I go to church as the only one from my street or my family, then I do this also on behalf of my street or my family. To be a Christian at that moment means to be a priest on behalf of those who live in my neighborhood and to offer sacrifices on behalf of my family. What if you thought about that as you got in the car and you drove out of your neighborhood and all the neighbors who do not go to any gospel-centered church, you said in your heart of hearts, I am going to God on their behalf. 
because they're not gonna darken the door of a church this weekend. And so I am going to go on their behalf as their representative, as their priest to bring them to God in prayer and to lift them up. And Northview as a family, I need to remind you of the high, high calling that we have received from God as a priest to stand between God and Abbotsford. To stand between God and mission for those of you across the bridge. To stand between God and Fleetwood for those of you over in Surrey. To stand between God as we scatter, we wander the streets, we walk the hallways at school, we go into the marketplace, we play sports on the fields. And every one of those situations we do so as representatives of God mediating two ways. We defend God to those around us. When we get to chapter 4, we'll be challenged with that. Make Make it a defense. Uh, be, be always ready to make a defense for the faith that's in you, he says in chapter 4. But also defending our city before God. Going back to God and asking him for mercy. And then as we gather, we do so on behalf of a world that might not know him. That we gather on behalf of our city and her citizens, knowing that there are many. In fact, knowing that they're the majority Do not lift up the name of Christ. Do not praise. The majority of our friends and neighbors will not do this. And so what do we do? We do it on their behalf. We thank God on behalf of all his common grace. We thank him for our civic government. We thank him for the beauty around us. We thank him for everything good that we enjoy in the city on behalf of everyone in the city, even those who will never themselves thank him. It is our parish and as the priest parish, we, as the priest of that parish, we pray for them. And back and forth, that interplay goes between God and the people we live among. We scatter to bring God into our city, and we gather to bring God to our city. Lord, have mercy. Lord, be gracious. Lord, for the sake of just 10 people, would you save this city? Remember Abraham's prayer? It's why back at the beginning of the year, and like many of you weren't here because we were just small gatherings in January, I, we handed out this card, this five-by-five prayer card, encouraging you and challenging you through the course of this year, would you pray for five people for five minutes, five days of the week? Would you commit yourself to say, five people that, in my life that I know and love who are far from God, I will, as a priest, intercede on their behalf. And if you didn't get one of those cards back in January, there's a bunch of them out on the carts as you leave. At, at all of our campuses, you can pick up one of these cards, take it with you, write down these names. We intercede. We say, Lord, we have sinned against you. Our city has sinned against you. Forgive us. And oh, Lord, how we need to see our gatherings in a richer and fuller sense that we don't just come to minister to one another, but we come to minister to God as a priest, and we come to minister on behalf of our city. In other words, when you come to the gathering, you're coming to work because you're a priest. And so I need to encourage you as we gather to put on your priestly robes because that is who you are. You are a holy nation. You are a holy priesthood. You are a chosen people. You are representatives of God, agents sent on mission. So we're going to close at all of our campuses. We'll close the same way. I'm going to invite you to stand with me in just a moment. And we're going to pray a prayer, first of all, a prayer of confession over our own lives. Because if you know the Old Testament pattern, what a priest did first was they confessed their own sins so that they were right with God. 
And then they interceded on behalf of those who were outside the temple. And so we're going to do that today at all of our campuses. So everywhere you're watching and here, stand with me. And we're going to pray this prayer together, good and loud. You pray along with me and make these words your own words. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We're truly sorry. We humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us. That we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. To the glory of your name, amen. So now we're clean. So now let's intercede for some others. Would you join me? And so, Lord God, as your priest, as your living house, as a royal priesthood, we come before you. Your word tells us that we can actually walk right into the Holy of Holies. And God, we can intercede for those who are not with us. And so, Lord, we do. We pray, Father, earnestly that you would pour out your spirit on our nation. We pray, Father, for the city of Abbotsford, for the city of Mission, for the city of Surrey, for people who are listening from wherever they're listening from, Lord, for their cities as well. And Lord God, we pray for marriages that need to be restored. We pray for workplaces that are hostile these days. We pray for our, our governmental leaders. We pray for our school teachers. We pray for the people around us who, who serve us so well every day. And Lord, they're such great loving people, but many of them do not know you. And Lord, we intercede for them. And we ask, Lord, by your spirit, you would pour out your spirit in new and fresh ways that as we pray for these people that we're reminded of, these five people that we know and love and we care for, that you would move in your spirit, that you would answer your promises, that said, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. So, Father, would you draw them? Father, would you call them to yourself? But, Lord, make us aware of our role, our priestly role, to stand in the gap on behalf of our city, our nation, and ultimately the world. Oh, God, have mercy. God, have mercy, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.